Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Okay, so my guest today on the pod is the chief executive of a very important charity called Hope and Homes for Children that I discovered one day when one of their representatives snuck onto my land and captured my attention for a minute, which is not easy or or smart. But anyway, before you know it, I got Kenny and T-Bone doing a triathlon, roped in. My wife doesn't want me to die. So before we get into today's episode, please let me your ears for a couple of minutes while I share a very important public service announcement from Hope and Homes for Children, who work tirelessly to take children out of orphanages and place them in loving homes where they can thrive. When a baby in an orphanage cries and nobody comes to comfort them, they learn not to cry by internalizing their pain, and they suffer lifelong mental and physical damage. Deprived of love, life, laughter, music, and hope, these kids will never experience the love and protection only a family can offer. Hope and Homes for Children's End the Silence campaign aims to raise about a million and a half pounds by Christmas to save 8 million children suffering silently in shocking overseas orphanages. And the great thing is that every pound donated to the campaign before the 27th of December will be doubled by the UK government. That's right, doubled. This will help Hope and Homes for Children to find families for 120,000 children currently neglected in the Ugandan and Rwandan orphanages. Supporting the End the Silence campaign could not be easier. Simply visit endthesilence.com. On the website, you'll find an interactive music memory time capsule, which allows you to pick your most precious childhood song, donate, and then share it on social media, along with the memory it evokes. By joining the world's top musicians and sharing your most precious childhood musical memory, you can help end the silent suffering of neglected children in orphanages. So, yo, I know you, my listeners, you're good people, the cream of the crop, I like to say, so do your good deed for the day. Pick your favorite childhood music memory, dig deep, and support the End the Silence campaign at endthesilence.com. Now, here's my conversation with Hope and Home's chief exec and all-around incredible dude, Mr. Mark Waddington. All right, we're here at the lovely Edition Hotel in London with my man Mark, and uh, I'm glad you, get, you got a chance to come sit with me here. I love this place. It's, it's, it's lit really nice today. Usually they have the work lights on. Yeah, it's a beautiful location to uh, sit and have a good old chat of an afternoon. Yeah, especially on a hot day. We've got some AC in here. Yeah, yeah. 
some fine yes. art. I think Lady's wearing a tinfoil hat over there. Yeah, and um, you've got proper wood cladding. <laughs> <laughs> Only the finest place for a non-visual podcast. Man. I was going to say, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Let me turn this up a little bit, make sure we got a little levels happening. Well, now I met you recently uh, at Abbey Road Studios, and it was, I guess, was it the yearly thing you guys do for the charity? And just tell me, it's Hope and Homes is the charity. And when I, I guess I first heard about it when an interloper came on my land and uh, dropped an invitation, which was very kind of, it was the next level invitation too. It was like a video thing that my daughter still loves, man, still pulling it apart. And my wife and I immediately were like, whoa, how come we didn't know anything about this? And it compelled us to find out more about it to the point that we ended up meeting you at, at the fundraiser. And I wanted to get you on the pod and talk about this thing because being a, a human being, who has a you know I guess a moderate amount of compassion? It moved me emotionally to the point where I, I was beside myself. So can you give me like a brief kind of like broad stroke on what the the charity is? Yeah, um, Hope and Homes for Children. We're working globally to close down orphanages. Mm -hmm. um, orphanages are one of the worst ways to bring children up. Uh, you can see this from all the evidence. Uh, Catastrophic mortality rates. If, if you go to the, if you go to Sudan, um, we've seen uh, mortality rates for children there at seventy percent. They're more like abattoirs than they are mm. orphanages, and the children don't need to be there. You know, more than ninety percent of children in orphanages globally uh, still have one or both biological parents alive. So it's looking at the reasons for separation of children from their, their parents in the first place and helping overcome those so that parents, families and children can come back together again. But Sudan's a good point because um, we've been working in Sudan for almost 20 years now. And uh, under Sharia law in, in that country, it's, it's illegal to have children outside of wedlock. Mm -hmm. So a lot of young girls, of course, get pregnant, as they do anywhere else in the world, and then abandon their children so in order not to be prosecuted. So these abandoned babies are on the streets in cities like Khartoum, and we're seeing you know, two, sometimes three babies a day, so a 1,000 children a year abandoned on the streets, and the main cause of their mortality is being eaten by dogs. It doesn't get worse than that. So these children previously were being referred into the orphanage system, these state orphanages, for the best will in the world. Um, but the mortality rates were catastrophic because the children were laid next to each other. There were two, three of them in a cot. Um, they were neglected for long periods of time. So you walked in there into a baby unit with 50 babies and they'd learned not to cry. It was silent. And this leads to the development of toxic stress. It inhibits their neurological progression and so forth. And, of course, you get all the cross-infection. So you bring those two things together, the neglect and the cross-infection, and you get catastrophic levels of mortality. So we began to work with local authorities. We started working with the police. We started working with the state government, the Khartoum state government. And they really took this on. And, and we set up an emergency foster care service, trained the police, and we've now been able to refer babies that have been abandoned straight into those uh, emergency foster families. Now, initially, these foster families were being stigmatised. Um, the local communities saw them as complicit in promoting promiscuity. Um, but we worked with local Muslim clerics and imams and, and through uh, scripture, and particularly the Friday prayers, 
were able to promote a new set of messages rooted in the Quran in a way that actually won, pe- won people's hearts and minds to support the kind of work we're doing. And it actually transformed it. Um, and it went from the communities stigmatising these foster families that took in these babies to actually when they took in a baby, giving and donating soap, giving and donating towels for nappies, giving and donating um, food, offering childcare and so forth. So the communities rallied around them. We've had 5,000 children through those emergency foster families now. We've recruited them, we've trained them. And the sweet spot is when you get the local authorities to begin to pay for it, because that's when it becomes sustainable. And we've managed to uh, win $40,000 a month. I know it's not a huge amount of money, but it's, it's helping the sustainability of the whole system to cover the costs of the emergency foster care services. So the point is, you know, when you look at just the crudest of metrics, mortality, mortality rates in Sudan, infant mortality for the under fives is, is on average about 13% which is very, very high. Um, In our emergency foster service, it's less than 1%. So this is saving lives. And then when you go beyond that and start to look at the well-being of the children in the system where they're being hugged and loved and they're going to school and they've got identity and so on and so forth, um, it's transformative. So it's not only changing their life, it's giving them hope. It's enabling them to live in a home, in a family with love and protection. So that's what we do, and we've learned a lot from Sudan. We've, uh, we've managed to reduce the number of children in the orphanage system in, in Rwanda by, by 70%. And I was in Rwanda recently and, and met a, uh, a boy there, Joseph. Now, he was born with severe cerebral palsy and was abandoned at birth. They took him into, into an orphanage in, in Kigali, and he couldn't move. And his cerebral palsy was that severe. So they, they laid him on a mat, and his only stimulation was looking at the ceiling and being fed his food through a bottle, just matched food, twice a day. That was it. No friends, no family to come and visit him and so forth. That was like that for eight years. I mean, he was not treated unkindly, but they just didn't know what to do with him. Now, we've been working across a number of communities around Kigali, and we're aware of several families where women in them had been trained as physiotherapists several years ago. So we approached those families and said, look, you know, would you consider becoming foster parents to children like Joseph? And several of them agreed. And so we brought them in and we helped them with, with refresher training. We helped them with uh, rehabilitating. Their, they've got very modest dwellings, mm-hmm. rehabilitating the houses in a way that would be safe for children like Joseph. And then when I racked up about... It would be eight to nine weeks after Joseph had been placed with his foster mother, Faith, and father, Albert. Um, Not only was he not laid flat on the floor, but he was sat unassisted and able to bum-shuffle around the whole house, incredibly mischievous, doing roly-polies on the bed, and as soon as Faith turned her back, he was out the back door, (laughs) straight into the garden, enjoying views that he'd never seen in his life. Rwanda is a a beautiful country. You know, he'd been looking at a ceiling for eight years. And his foster sisters were teaching him how to turn the pages of a picture book with his feet. So he was getting that stimulation. And I was listening to to Faith and, you know, how she'd got him to that point. And they were doing four hours a day physiotherapy with Joseph just to build up his core strength. Um, 
and he became mobile. <clears throat> He's not going to get much better than he is now, but he can move. He has some independence. He has some dignity. He, yeah, can, he can feed himself. Yeah. You know, that's human dignity. And they took him to registering for social insurance, and um, which is well developed in Rwanda. <clears throat> and the guy who was uh, doing the registration not unkindly said to them, why have you done this? You know, this child is useless to you. He's not going to be able to do jobs around the house. Mm -hmm. He's never going to be able to bring income in or look after you when you get old. And, and Faith said, yeah, that's correct, but he's, he's our blessing. And the guy went silent, and he didn't register him as Joseph. He registered him as Blessing. Wow. And that has become his name in the village, Blessing. And it just doesn't get better than that. So yeah. that's what we do as a charity. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, as far as broad strokes go, that's, a, that's amazing. And I, I you know, try to bring that into, like, the first world is probably, I guess, the biggest challenge for you guys. You know, I mean, it seems, you know, if the Internet goes down at someone's house, that's the catastrophe. And then we don't really know what a real catastrophe is if we can hear a story like that guy, Joseph, or Blessing, I think I should call him from yeah, now yeah, on, right? Yeah. Now, now, with things like... With things like uh, governmental involvement, it seemed to me that that was something that charities don't do, that they were kind of like, uh, with the kind of like the, the nod and blessing of, of kind of, of a government, but you guys go directly to the government, try to work with them by example, which I thought was a really key part. Like you say to them, look, we're going to show you what we can do, and then they kind of want to do it anyway because the government is usually there anyway to help the people of the country, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at what we've achieved in Romania, for example. The only way we can get systemic change, sustainably locked in, is by working with government. We need political will. Uh, we need legislation in place. We need policies in place. We need the funding mechanisms for these social services in place. And... Um, the, the, the model that we use now was developed uh, by our team uh, over a number of years in Romania. Um, and when we started there, working alongside other organisations as well, the number of uh, children confined to institutional care was over 100,000. I don't know if you remember the pictures from Ceausescu's regime. Yeah, yeah, he was a nasty piece of work, yeah, man. I mean, you've got kids, you know, shaved heads, not ascribed a gender until they were 11, tied to radiators and so forth. I mean terrifying way to treat a human being, let alone a child. Well, we brought that number down from 100,000 to less than 8,000 now. So we're on the last furlong. We've been able to do that by working with local authorities, demonstrating uh, how to close orphanages by putting in place prevention services to stop the separation of children from their families in the first place and turn the supply of children into the system off and helping families overcome those causes of separation, which are very often things like housing, access to education, access to health, and so on. And if you put all the money that you've got in the orphanage system into supporting families, these children would never be separated in the first place. Now, of course, there are some families that are not suitable for children. Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean to say we need to put them in orphanages. We put them in other forms of family-based care. That could be kinship care with the extended family. It could be foster care. It could be adoption and so on. And there are some children that have very particular needs because of their behaviour or because of their health conditions and so on. But you can still create family-like environments in, in a professional foster environment, mm -hmm. in a family-like home, a small group home as well. So it's different forms of residential care that we don't need orphanages in this day and age. 
and the science proves it. You know, you look at look at the outcomes that children have in orphanages compared to what children have in foster care or reintegrated with their families. Families are far superior ways of, of uh, rearing children. It, it's weird because I know that, I guess, just growing up in the generation I grew up in, I knew of orphanages, and I actually thought that they were a good thing because there were kids that, I mean, like you said, have like issues that do not have families, and you figure, oh yeah, if they go into an orphanage, someone's going to care about them. But then you know you see these pictures of the orphanages, and you realize that, I mean, a, a lot of people don't come out of them good, you know, yeah. and like. Yeah. I think that's the, I, you know, I know when I was first talking to a friend of mine about this charity in particular, he was like, well, aren't orphanages kind of there to help the kids? I go, kind of, but not really, because they're there as almost like a, like a gas station if you're low on gas, but it's not giving you anything you really need. It's giving you like, you know, I guess, you know, an institutional kind of, I mean, it's, it's almost like I can't even find the words of what orphanages do now. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's almost like a jail for kids. And you think about like, you know, Bad kids have to go to JV or whatever we call it in America, you know, juvenile detention centers. But these kids didn't do anything wrong. They yeah. just, by the by their situation, they find themselves in this big system, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you've hit on two really important points there. Um, uh, I mean, the first is is the dehumanization of children, and it, you can look if you did comparators between um, prisons and juvenile justice facilities, and you compared them to orphanages, particularly state orphanage systems you would see direct comparators and you would confuse the two. Um, and this is the problem with institutionalization. But you know, equally in the in, in the I mean we've all given to charities, you know, I did, you know, when I was a kid. In fact, you know, some of the residue orphanages that we had in the UK back in the day, you know, we'd go around and we'd volunteer and, and so on. And and many people have set up orphanages or worked with orphanages back in the day for, for the noblest of reasons, mm-hmm. all for the right reasons. But a lot of that has shifted now in the modern world. I mean, you go to a country like um, like Uganda, and and the economy associated with orphanages is huge. Really? So yeah, we we saw <coughs> the, the the Americans actually had funded uh, substantially the closure of the orphanage system in Uganda, such that by the end of the 1990s there were there were approximately just over a thousand children in the orphanage system in in the country. Um, well, since 1998, the number of orphans in Uganda has reduced, but the number of orf- uh, children in orphanages has increased from 1,000 to 55,000. And that's being driven by the orphanage economy. We're seeing a quarter of a billion dollars a year coming in through tourists, volunteers, and from well-meaning faith-based communities mm. to support orphanages. And of course, these, these orphanages are set up as businesses, profit-making businesses, and they extract and harvest children from their families, usually vulnerable families, to place children in orphanages. And of course, it's a per capita funding mechanism. So the more children you have in your orphanage, the more donations you will attract. And where it gets insidious is if you keep those children in a chronic state of malnutrition, then you get more money and you can top slice that and keep it for yourself. So it's been quoted as the orphanage industrial complex, and it's a very good way of looking at it. You have this conflation of interest between profit and the commoditization of children. And it's not only in Uganda, it's not only in Africa, it's elsewhere in the world. That's, like, that's infuriating, isn't it, though? I mean, you, you work on the front lines of these things, and I guess you must be frustrated into action, really, and it must motivate you to you know, do, do this thing. I mean, how did you get involved in, in this charity? 
Um, <clears throat> well, I used to uh, I used to run a charity called War Child. Yeah, I used to. Yeah. So you know, we're doing child protection, but in in the humanitarian space, and um, you know, what a great cause, absolutely superb cause, and I, I work with some great people there. But after about seven and a half years, you know, you're constantly reacting in the humanitarian space. Um, in the best moments, you're responding. Yeah. Um, what really attracted me to Hope and Homes for Children was the opportunity to get at the root cause of a humanitarian injustice, mm -hmm. the violation of children's rights. Children sh have the right to grow up in the love and protection of a family. And, and Hope and Homes for Children, we have this opportunity to actually get at the root causes of the problems of separation and to get at the root causes of of the way in which the economy associated with orphanages drives the institutionalization of children. <clears throat> and that's really exciting. You know, I'd, I've said ad nauseum to my, my colleagues, I, I want to be sitting with my grandchildren, playing with them in 20, 30 years' time. 30. <laughs> you got young kids too. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're not so young anymore. But, um, uh, you know, playing with my grandkids, and one of them chirps, you know, what's an orphanage, granddad? I don't bloody know because there aren't any left. Yeah. That's where I want to be at the end of my road, you know. So, uh, so yeah, that's really exciting to be able to be working with a charity that and, and just highly committed, highly talented people. It's a phenomenal organisation, you know. We've got some. Well, you've met many of them. Yeah, I did. You know, and, including <laughs> including Wayne, who doorstepped you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'll still stalk you. Yeah, he knows where I live now. <laughs> the, the thing I found when I started talking to all you guys that night was under such circumstances, the optimism was contagious. And, you know, for, I guess, lack of a better comparison, when I was a Marine, there was a system of, there was a, there was a sense of brotherhood and, and sense of purpose. And I really found that with you guys. You know, there was, there was something like, all right, this, we can end this. This isn't something that's going to be going on for the next 50 years, like we just mentioned. In 30 years, you're going to get into, you know. And... To me, when you can see an end of something, I think that was it was excuse me reiterated by the guys that were on stage that night, and I thought it was really good to know when you see people. I mean, like for instance, if somebody's saying, "Oh, we want to end HIV," and it's a very kind of esoteric idea, like you know, one day we'll have this and we'll have the tools. You have the tools. You have the motivation. You have the, the strategy. It can end extremely soon, and I think that's what I think that's when people get their head around that. That's when it's like, well, yeah, we've got to do this. I mean, it is all about, you know, I don't want to be all Whitney Houston about it, but it is the children are our future, and if we screw them over, what are we going to have left, you know? And the fact that we can stop orphanages in, in parts of the world that, like you said, are turning into like a, it's like a business. Yeah. This is amazing stuff, man. I think yeah. it's just, you know, for me, I, I wanted to get this out there because, I, you know, doing this podcast... It's always fun to sit around and talk about this, that, and the other thing, but to actually talk about something that really fucking matters. Excuse my French, but you know what I'm saying? That really matters, that can stop. Like, you can do it, you can finalize this injustice to young people, kids, children, babies. In our lifetime. Yeah. In our lifetime. We can do it globally, you know? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> We've still not won the argument. There are some out there who still think that orphanages are... Even a last resort. All right, so I'll be a devil's advocate for a sec. Okay, so, you know, I think orphanages help kids, ultimately. Right, that's what people would think. They, you know, I guess some people, right? Talk to Harvard University. Talk mm -hmm. to Cambridge University. Come and see the work that we do. The, the science is, is almost conclusive. 
from, from the neuroscience looking at brain scans and the impact of institutionalisation on a child's neurological development all the way through to behavioural and wellbeing metrics, educational outcomes, health outcomes and, and so on. <clears throat> we can prove that institutional care is damaging to children. Equally, we have proved you know, 80% improvement in cognitive ability, including language and socialisation when you place a child in foster families, over and above those children who remained in the orphanage system. I mean, it really is black and white. You can see mortality rates in, in families so much higher, sorry, lower than uh, in, in orphanages. You can see levels of well-being so much higher in families than in than in institutions. So <clears throat> I think that it's, it's possibly more a nuanced argument. You know, I get often asked, for example, well, surely it's better to have a child in an orphanage than on the street. Yeah, that, yeah that's, the, that's the argument that I heard. Yeah, I mean... And, and you, shot, you shot holes in that one, which is well, great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's think better that... to have them in a family than on the bloody street. Yeah. You know, the, 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 it's not a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the issue is let's get different forms of family care in place, emergency foster family care and, and so on. And, and we can do it. We've proved it. You know, Sudan's quite a challenging country to work in. Mm-hmm. We've proved you can do it. We're working in South Africa. We're working in Rwanda. We've got incredible partners in countries like uh, Uganda and Zambia. We're working in Romania and Bulgaria. We've got incredible partners in Latin America and, and more recently in India. You know, it doesn't matter where we go. You've got this compelling argument because of the science. And it's, it's almost, you could almost crown it as the science of love. Mm. It proves that parenting, good parenting and holding your child and cooing with your child and stroking your child and looking after them as a, as a parent would has a scientific validity to it. I mean, what's not to like about it? Yeah, yeah it, it, it's common sense. And, you know, they say common sense isn't too common. But when it's, it, when it's explained, I guess, eloquently like you did, where you say, look, you know, if you have... Like, I think it was really important to state that it's not binary. It's not like on the street orphanage. It, there's, there's other stuff involved. And I mean, what are the, we were talking about Africa, and I, I remember at the event there was that, that really cool couple that were from uh, Albania, right? Romania. Romania, yeah, yeah. and it was it was a really moving film that was there. And then when they came up on stage, you, could, you know, it was just one of those things where it was it was a moment where you realize that you know, love does conquer all when it when it works. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is where are the hot spots that still have. I mean, we were talking about Africa a lot. I guess that's because it's the old kind of colony mentality where they kind of just set up a place to put kids, to help the kids out with all the best intentions, but then it just kind of snowballs into nonsense. And, well, and it's not normal in... I mean, I, I'm not an expert by any stretch of imagination because Africa is so vast and yeah. so diverse. You know, 53 different countries. And yeah, people do lump Africa in like it's Philadelphia. It's not yeah, like exactly. a little place. It's, you know, the biggest continent in yeah. the world, you know. But I've had the privilege to travel to, to in excess of 25 African countries and it is not normal anywhere in any African culture that I've had any limited involvement with or experience of to place a child in an orphanage. That's a European construct. Yeah, it feels that way. And yeah, well, this is where Africa has. I think Africa is the place that, that we need to be um, so seriously right now because <clears throat> a quarter of the world's children are African mm-hmm. right now. In the not too distant future, half the world's children are going to be African. 
So if there is any truth to Whitney Houston's lyrics, mm. then the future of the world is in Africa's hands. The cradle of humanity really is in Africa. You know, half of the world's children are going to be in one continent. If we can support Africa to generate homegrown solutions to the, to the challenges that the African families have in the modern world, we will have the continent well positioned to care for the majority of humanity and nurture them in a way that's going to give us hope and optimism for the future. Africa's the most important place in the world right now. And personally, I, don't think, I couldn't think of any better people to be caring for children than Africans. Stay tuned. There's more when we come back. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Well, I mean, I, I have a couple friends that are from Africa that I grew up with. My friend uh, Claudius, I'm mean, he's listening. I don't know what's up, Claude. Uh, he, his mom was from Lesotho, and he grew up in, in uh, South Africa. And the one thing that I got from him, another friend, my friend's wife is, is uh, from South Africa as well. In when you're in outside of a city and you're in a village, and something happens to a parent or two parents, they say they become orphaned. A child becomes orphaned. The tribe picks that kid up, brings him in. It's not even a, it's not even an issue, and I and I think with the I guess the colonialization of Africa, with Western that kind of that kind of took away the I guess the personal touch of a tribe you know that looked after each other. Well, there's and a it, saying in Africa across so many different cultures that it takes a village to rear a child. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's true. It's true. By the way, I need a shout out to my wife because she's African she's from Zambia so I had to say all of that it was scripted in advance (laughs) the the thing about I guess the thing about Africa that I mean it's been going on since I was a kid with you know with I guess the big famine and the we are the world thing and it it, I don't don't know if it's a a racist or a racial thing about Africa because there are black folk there but it always seemed 
like nothing really got through to a lot of the governments in Africa. I mean, you know, like you had Idi Amin and all this government. He didn't really give a damn about his people, but it seems like there's still a problem with the governments. But the one thing that I found with you guys that made like a ton of sense is like you go talk to these guys, even if they are, you know, a little bit shady, you talk to them. And maybe they might be shady, but the one minister who's kind of in charge that kind of would see the light. And it just seems like you guys work with people despite their human frailties, you know what I mean? And it, and it, it gets stuff done nonetheless. And now, by the way, look, I, I know you know this, the, uh, the appalling nature of dictatorship mm. or mi mismanaged fraudulent governments is, is not a function of skin color. Yeah. You know, let's just throw in a few names there. Adolf Hitler, mm. Joseph Stalin, mm. Prince John, you know, whomever. You know, uh, uh, these are functions of political economies. Mm. Um, they're functions of the separations of power. They're economically driven, socially driven, and so on. Um, you know, and Africa was... was I remember seeing a, a really telling interview with uh, uh, JJ, JJ Rawlings, who was for many years and has been um, uh, several times president of Ghana. And I think it was the BBC that was uh, interviewing him and they were talking to him about corruption. And he came in in a coup in the early 80s because of corruption. He was very popularist. And then he stepped down and democracy came in. And then there was another coup because of corruption, he came back in and so forth. And he turned around to the journalist, whoever it was at the time, and said, look, it's really easy for you from the UK, who has since approximately 12.15 had some form of constitutional <laughs> democracy rooted in the Magna Carta. And that in itself, not the Magna Carta, but what well, it is actually, our democracy is spurious at best. Um, independent Africa has only been independent for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. You know, give us a fucking chance. <laughs> yeah, that's the. I mean, I, I guess with it seems like it's happened within the last twenty years. I guess the advent of the internet. Everybody's an expert on everything, but no one really studies history. And I and I, I think the expectations of Africa to jump on board and everything. You know, let's and get the carve you know, up of Africa. You know, that was done by Europeans. Mm -hmm. You know, for European interests. Yeah. And when colonial colonialization stopped with its asset stripping, it was then re replaced with neocolonial mm -hmm. asset stripping, mm -hmm. you know, and our companies, you know, and it's the biggest dog in the pack, you know, you know who's got the biggest companies. Yeah. Um, and it does need putting in that context. Um, and you've got this flight of talent from Africa, you know, we, we have an amazing African diaspora here in the UK, you know, just, I would say 50%, just off the top of my head, of most of the Africans I know in the UK. I've got PhDs, mm -hmm. master's degrees, MPhils, and so these are highly professional, highly intelligent people. And sadly, we've had this flight of talent from Africa. So you're left, I mean, there are some hugely talented people in Africa, but you're, you're left with this brain drain residue, and, and that's difficult for the continent as well. Yeah. Um, it, it, I think it, I, I, you know, I've seen, uh, you've probably seen a lot more of it too, but I've seen a lot of guys that I knew that, that were from Africa a lot of people leave Africa to get educated, and then they may stay where they got educated, be say at the West or you know whatever, England, New York, whatever. But now I'm seeing a lot of guys maybe doing a little work in in the West and going, you know what, I got to go back and help my people out. Yeah. And you know, there's that. I guess there's that trend to say that you know all societies are equal and we're all great, but I don't really think that's the case. I think certain societies have a little bit of an edge as far as like you know compassion and humanitarianism and things. 
and I think a lot of times when, like you know, like people say life is cheap in Africa, I don't think that's the case. I think the African people know it's worth a lot. And you know, like you said, a couple guys on the top might not think it's that important for whatever reason. But the people that I've met are like, they want to go back because they want to help these people out. They're people. Well, if you look at the global aid budget, uh, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, it's around about 350 to 400 billion US dollars. And that's official aid from OECD countries. Well, if you look at remittances from the African diaspora and other diaspora back to their home countries, it's probably double that now. Yeah. You know, people do care. They do care about, you know, their, their families back home and their communities. And look at the African entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. There is nothing like it. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, organizations like Hope and Homes for Children is, is so successful in the African space is because people are, are not afraid to innovate. They're not afraid to be entrepreneurial. They're not afraid to give it a go and a shot. Well, I mean, it's the biggest tech growth sector of the world. It's been that way for 10 years, right? I mean, it's, it's totally flipping, you know, I mean, like when I was talking about the advent of the internet, but the advent of the mobile phone businesses going through. I mean, I had a friend of mine who was African guy, worked in San Francisco for, I guess he like he made, he was a designer. He was like a, I guess a electronic designer who worked a little bit with Apple. He went back and he started, he started working with this company called Glow, which is a Nigerian yeah. telephone yeah. company. And he just brought the whole idea of like, look, everybody... If we can make this work, everybody will be connected. And once you connect people to everybody else, it kind of equalizes everybody. Because there was a whole, there was a, you know, in the world there's a big disparagement for very rich people and very poor people. But in Africa, it's very abject in a lot of ways. You know, you see people that do not have anything. You see very few people who do. Now, you start seeing it kind of proliferate a little bit. And with that, I think people are starting to understand that it's not like this... I remember living in New York. I had a friend who went to Italy once when I was a kid. It's a bad example, but I was like, wow, Italy, man, where the hell? And I was thinking Rome. He's like, no, it's not Rome. It's somewhere south and so Salerno and, 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 you know, or Palermo and Sicily. And I was like, what the hell is that? I mean, looking on a map, you're like, holy moly, that must take them years to get there. Now, I thought about Africa even probably, you know, compounded that, like, wow, where the hell? How do you get, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, it's just, you know, five, six hours away. You know, on a plane from, yeah, exactly. you know, you, you could fly there probably five, six hours to North Africa from here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time I was in Kampala back in the late 80s, you know, it was, uh, you've got marabou storks and vultures and all the rest of it, and there's still some of them around now, but now you've got multi-story car parks yeah. and, you know, 24-7 supermarkets, and I'm not saying that those marks of modernity are marks of democracy and well-being, but they, you know, the, what we're seeing is economic development, social development coming along with it, and, you know, Africa's developing its own future in, in many regards. Of course there are problems. Of course there are... Look, yeah, the thing is, there are problems everywhere. And I think when people look at Africa, and I think the great point was like, yeah, they've been kind of working on this freedom shit for about 50 years, right? We've been at it for like 800 or something. Yeah. And we haven't mastered it either, man. So to be to be as, you know, as arrogant to say, like, you guys got to catch up, man. Yeah, it's like completely. That's a little silly. Yeah. Like, I'm going to grab some water. You want something? Yeah, yeah. Go on. Let me get around. Thank you. I like that. Being proper looked after. They're cool here, man. One of the cool things you were talking about when we met, I mean, we can get into it a little bit if you want, about how the charity got started, which is a crazy story, too, man. I mean, yeah, and, and you know, thank you. We, our founders, uh, Mark and Caroline Cook, so this is back in 1994. Mark, uh, 
as a colonel and uh, led the British um, contingent of the UN forces in Bosnia. And, uh, I mean, obviously witnessed many things, but one of the things that really moved him in particular was the, the bombing of the main orphanage in Sarajevo. Um, and, and, of course, what that meant for children. And he did what anybody would have done, you know, and said, right, I'm, I'm going I'm to resolve this problem, and came back to the UK. Um, Caroline got involved, and, and they raised the money to rebuild the orphanage system. And just like you or I were doing back in the day, you know, volunteering for orphanages or giving money here and so forth, they went back and they rebuilt it. They did it. They did what they yeah. said they'd do. And, and, and this is what is, for me, the, the most impressive thing um, that they achieved. They went back and they listened to the children. Mm-hmm. And, and when Mark and, and Caroline tell you that story, that they were surprised at the time that the children didn't seem happy. You know, they were glum. And so they asked the children, you know, we've rebuilt the orphanage, what's wrong? And the children said, we, look, we're really grateful for what you've done, but we want to be in families. And that got them thinking. Mm-hmm. And so, over the years, they invested in uh, understanding, you know, opportunities and alternatives to orphanages, and did a 180-degree shift. And, and that, I think, has really um, informed the development of our DNA as an organisation. It means, firstly, we're not holier than thou. Mm. We started by building orphanages. Mm-hmm. So, so we can be humble. We're not going in there to preach to anybody. And that's an important message. Um, and secondly, we're a learning organisation. And I don't mean that in a, in a wanky business sense. I really mean we're a learning organisation because we've learned. And, and it was Mark and Caroline that pioneered that. And they've inspired people from day one. And, I mean, I'm, I've only been with Hope and Homes for Children for five and a half, six years coming up now. And have I fell in love with the organisation on day one. We have... We have the finest people I've ever worked with, serving, serving the organisation, committing their time, their, their soul, their, their energy, everything, their life force to this. <clears throat> and I've, I've said right from the beginning of my time with Open Homes for Children that one of the most remarkable things the organisation has been able to do is attract some of the most amazing people whether they're staff members, volunteers, supporters, donors, funders, partner organisations. And I truly believe that's down to the way in which Mark and Caroline set up the organisation. So we have a lot... They're, they're retired now, and, and I speak with them on a regular basis because obviously they're hugely interested in what's going on. Um, but we owe them a lot. All of us do, because you know we go to bed at night, all of us, just thinking, even if you've had a bad day, you know you're doing something worthwhile. Yeah. You sleep with peace in your soul. And you get up the following day with your engine pumping. And having that opportunity as a human being to live your life in that way is, is more than a privilege. So we owe them a lot. We, we owe them a huge amount. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of children. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are, yeah, yeah. have benefited from all of this, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's a remarkable story. And, you know, they are definitely the backbone of the charity's work right from day one. It, it, it's, it's almost, it, it, it seems almost a novel idea that, that you said you're a learning charity. A lot of people have, I guess, a charter when they start the charity and it doesn't shift. It's not fluid. It's, it's, it's not realistic, you know what I mean? And I think the story, and I, I read that book, you guys gave me that book, and it was... 
the thing I found about it that was just so like, yeah, but no one ever thinks that way is like, you know, you, you ask people, what's up? You know, like it's you come in, in righteousness from yeah. the mission. Yeah. You know, there's one thing, because it can become a cloak mm-hmm. over a charity. Therefore, what we do is righteous. Therefore, what we do is right. Yeah, and, and anything and, and, we decide to do, you know. And this is Mark and Caroline's legacy. You know, actually, we're going to question what we do here. Mm-hmm. You know, is this the right thing? And, and the most important thing they did, and, and this was the moment, was to listen to children. I mean, the, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child has four umbrella rights, survival, uh, development, protection, and the one that is most overlooked is participation. Mm. And it might be, you know, all four umbrella rights, all, all rights, all articles in the, uh, in the convention do not supersede each other. They're all seen as equal. But if I was to choose one, and I'm naughty to do so, but if mm. I was to choose one, I think it's participation that's most important. Because you're giving children a pathway for their voices to be heard, for them to be franchised into their own development, mm-hmm. into their own protection. And that's exactly what Mark and Caroline did from day one with Hope and Homes for Children. Yeah, that's an interesting concept because, you know, I guess, when I was talking earlier about first world problems, right? You always think, you know, something like protection would be really important to someone who, say, lives in London, right? Because they think, oh, you know, you don't want a kid getting in a situation where it's, it's being exploited or, or, you know, whatever. But that kind of yeah, I, I see where, you, where you're saying where that kind of immediacy and I guess someone actually having a way to not just stay on that, I guess you know, it's really hard to explain. I, I think what I'm trying to say is when you have somebody who's in a system, in the system, right, say, <clears throat> they don't really think beyond the system. That's their reality. And they're not encouraged to think beyond that system. Now, you take a kid who has whatever reason is orphaned, right? Doesn't have to go to an orphanage, gets rehomed to the, a, a, you know, a, a decent foster family who care for him, like you said, look out for him. That'll change their whole perception. And I guess that's what you mean by, you know, bringing him, bring him out of that, that yeah, mentality. And, and there's a practical element to it as well, because <clears throat> uh, if you start to, to listen to what children think in terms of who they trust... Mm-hmm. And what makes them feel safe? I mean, they are experts on their own childhood. Yeah, I mean, everybody doesn't listen to kids, but and you kind of should listen to kids, man. That's yeah. what, you know, when you start listening to children in those terms, then you can pick out what is a threat to them, yeah. and then you can start creating child protection policies and plans that actually genuinely ensure the protection of children. What's the greatest threat to children in the world today? Is it being marginalized at an institutional level when they're young in this kind of situation where they're orphaned? Because, I mean, there must be a percentage of orphaned kids in the world that's exceptionally large that we don't even know about. Well, there's two. I mean, there are three statistics that, uh, and, you know, they can be diversely interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the first is that the, the vast majority of all children in orphanages are not orphans. Yeah. See, that's something when I heard that, I was like, whoa, what is going on? Exactly. Um, and, and we've got to really unpick that and understand why. The second statistic is that approximately, we estimate there are 8 million children in orphanages around the world. So that's a large number, um, but it's what that represents that is, I think, more important, which leads us to a, a third statistic, 
which is that there are around about 300 million children in forms of kinship care around the world, unsupported, so with extended family, with an aunt and uncle, a grandparent or so on, <clears throat> or in a child-headed household where an older sibling is looking after them. And it's understanding the connection between children who are vulnerable to institutionalisation and the one-size-fits-all fits policy of that and this broader constituency of 300 million children. Because, you know, as we, as we project forward and start to scope out the future, we have a number of global development challenges that we have not wrestled down yet. Mm. Poverty, yeah. inequality, urbanisation, population growth, climate change. Now, if you start to layer those in a particular location, we can absolutely see how governments will come in with fiscally convenient, one-size-fits-all policies, like orphanages, yeah. and use them to mop up everybody who they perceive as vulnerable. Yeah, with all the best intentions. With all the best yeah. intentions. And let, let, I mean, just look at the, the situation in South Africa right now. So you've got a, a country that is rapidly evolving for so many different reasons, highly complex, very muscular uh, in the Southern African context mm -hmm. economically. The single main cause of infant mortality in South Africa is homicide. That's for the under fives. Who's killing kids under That's fives, shocking. man? Yeah. But just consider that in the, in the context, though, of global development challenges, where they're being led. You've got urbanisation, so we're seeing large proportion of the youth move from uh, rural villages and communities into the large cities, Cape Town, Durban, mm -hmm. Pretoria, Johannesburg and so forth. You're seeing intrinsic population growth within those cities uh, without the investment in the infrastructure. You're seeing the detachment of these young people from their communities and families. So when, when somebody gets pregnant and they are just on the cusp of survival and their boyfriend abandons them, how the, hell, who, how the hell do you support that child? Yeah. Because there are no services in place. You abandon the child, you throw it down a pit latrine, and you know, you, can you imagine what poverty does to a human mind to place it under such stress that they will do something like that? So, and this is the world in which we're projecting ourselves into, into the future. These global development challenges have not been addressed yet. And our big fear is that governments will come back with monolithic policies to try and deal with them, when actually the opposite is required. We need a complexity of services. Yeah. And by the way, these family support services are far more cost-effective yeah. than these monolithic institutionalised policies. They deliver better outcomes for children, they deliver better outcomes for secondary beneficiaries, their siblings, their families and so forth. They deliver better outcomes for communities. And when you top the balance sheet up, and invariably wherever we go, we can prove that what we do is far more cost effective. So when you know all roads lead, lead back to Rome, mm -hmm. we will always end up in front of the Minister of Finance yeah. in whatever country we work in. And the first thing they're going to say is, we can't afford to do that. Now, once we've done our social return on investment surveys and put that file in front of them, well, you fucking well can't afford not to. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the thing that, that really flipped my lid when I was sitting there going, wow, man. So it's less expensive. And, 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 yeah. and But the thing I think is a fundamental problem, I guess, when you look on a, like a large scale, like a country trying to deal with a problem like this, is to be individual 
problem solvers seems probably overwhelming. Like they couldn't say they got ten thousand kids they got to look after, and they think, you know, if we just get like say ten orphanages that fit a thousand kids, we're good, you know. But because thinking of ten thousand different unique situations to help the kids out, they, I guess they they look at it as overwhelming and probably crazy expensive and not cost effective. And then you lay the numbers out for them, and they're like. Oh, all we got to do is like kind of... Yeah, no shit. shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, do the math. Yeah. Uh, but it's getting that long-term vision, you know, which politicians don't find so easy because it has. It means it's, they've got to bust through their own mm-hmm. vested interests in their own political cycles and so forth. But, you know, the thing is, though, these people are also human beings yeah. and they understand it. And, and there is nothing more powerful than coming to see the children we work with and, and what living in a family environment has been able to do for them. It's not just about saving their life, it's about enriching it, you know. And, uh, and, and the, you know, human beings get that invariably at the yeah. end of the day. See, the, the one thing that I, I loved about when I first were talking to you about it, 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 it was, uh, it's, it's good to see that people really are into that attention to detail. Because like we were talking about, like you know, the the big problem with the with going to countries, say like you know in Sudan, initially you might think there would be a religious issue, and then when you kind of show them that there's not a real religious issue, they're like, well, it might be a financial issue. And like, no, it's not a financial issue either. And like, and then you think they'll probably come up with another reason not to do it, but they're not. They go, yeah. well, okay then. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I mean, a lot of times people have that. I guess that's their their filter in a lot of countries around the world where it'd be, is it a sociological problem? Or a financial problem, or a religious problem. And if if there, if those things are, I guess, taken care of in a really kind of, you know, nuanced way. You mentioned it before. You you can get results that are yeah. literally astounding. Well, sometimes it's just you know shining the torch mm-hmm. in a way that reveals an alternative yeah. solution. And you know, people are invariably interested in that kind of thing. But you know, you got two ways of looking at the world. You can either see everybody out there as as enemies and competitors, or you can look at them as allies and potential partners. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's how we approach our work with local authorities and national governments. Um, and it's not easy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I imagine you have your efforts are frustrated at certain points. And sometimes then. it's like pushing shit uphill with your hands, mm-hmm. you know. But um, we get it there. Mm-hmm. We get it there. No, well, I mean, you must have the patience of a saint. Huh? I'm not known for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you seem like a regular guy to me, right? And the thing that also when we were speaking, we speak like guys speak. You know, we have it's a, you know, I guess we're into like colorful language and stuff like that. And I guess with that comes almost an irreverence to authority. Now, when you stand in front of these these financial ministers, and you got to kind of like you know, almost like you're rolling your eyes inside your head because you can't really show them that you can't get it. But once they once they kind of understand the fact, and you, and I think you mentioned it one time, you kind of almost let them come come upon the solution themselves, so they can almost take credit for them themselves. And that's a really kind of that's a really cool way to almost uh, yeah. I guess if everybody thinks they came up with the idea, it's their idea, and it, it, it kind of works. But so long as the I guess so long as the mission is accomplished, the fact that you don't have to take credit for it, I find is a cool thing to do. I mean it, and it's it's a thing is that. I guess, I mean, the ethos of the charity is kind of like, if it gets done, that's great. We don't need to take credit for it, but just as long as things get done. Yeah, and that happens so often to us. And, and, you know, it's not always me that's sitting in front of ministers. In fact, invariably it isn't. You know, it'll be one of my colleagues who are doing it, and they're the ones that are showing the patience. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who've really got skin in the game, because invariably they're nationals as well. Yeah. 
I mean, um, you do work with people, and I mean, it's all around the world. Our Romanian too, right? program is run by Romanians. Our Rwandan program is run by Rwandans, and so on. Um, and you know, these are the guys who are doing all the heavy lifting, always. Um, and you know, they've they've gone through it. They've been through, and we've got cases of them being attacked with axes, being shot at, being you know dragged through the national press, and. And what have you? And yeah, what's the motivation for stuff like that, though? Well, you know, occasionally they do do. I know it's cliche, but they do just get on their horse and ride off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Job done today. Yeah. I'm going home. I've done the job. Yeah. And you know, it sounds it sounds pious, but when you see the work on the ground and you see what it does for those children, that's it. Then you go home at night, and it doesn't matter what's been thrown at you. You know, you go home and. You Turn your music on. You give your wife a hug and a bit of a kiss and a cuddle, and you play with the kids. You drink a beer, and then you're match fit tomorrow morning. Mm. You know, it's it's that easy. I remember when we first spoke. We started. We you know we were talking about the charity, obviously, but then we started talking about music because I think the way you guys did this latest thing at, at, at Abbey Road was so inclusive. You know, everybody has a love for music. Well, most people do. You know, and it touches people very intimately. We were talking about how you love music, and I'm a music guy yeah, too. Yeah. So I mean, music saved my life in a lot of ways too. I think we were talking about Ma Rainey and stuff like that. We were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big Mama Thornton. Yeah, Big Mama Thornton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I wrote this book not too long ago, and I, I got to give you a copy of it by the way. But there's there's a there's a great little kind of passage where the women were the ones that are kind of like they run stuff anyway. But us guys like this, you know, kind of think that we kind of get a little like you said, a little skin of the game. But in in Ma Rainey's case, in she was getting paid like seven times as much as any male artist of the time. Mm. And it kind of brought me around to the idea of, well, you know, whenever you talk to women about certain issues that guys kind of want to be callous about, the women actually will take the time to go, hey, you know, this is a really important thing. And especially with, when it comes to children, it always yeah. seems like a lot of times the women are the more compassionate ones, right? And when I was talking to you, I... I I'm a really. I'd like to think I'm a compassionate guy, but when you were talking to me about, it, I could just see like this guy is a really decent dude trying to do what he's got to do for the world, right? And it's not through. I mean, I, I don't know about your religious background and anything like that. As a matter of fact, it's not important to me. What I thought was kind of cool was, is that you know you're not going to get medals for this. You're not going to get rich doing this. It's something you feel compelled to do. And when you talk about musicians like Ma Rainey, they were compelled to make music. They didn't think, oh, I can make some money doing this. This is what they did. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a vocation in a lot of ways with musicians. And I think this is kind of like something, I don't mean, like I said, I don't know your religious background. I really don't know your motivations. But I find that when I meet, I haven't really met anybody like you, but people in, in your line of work that are humanitarians, and you're, you know, maybe you told me I'm in child, child welfare. You, you got it together like that. But there must be something that, like you said, you go home and you feel charged up if you've got something done. Do you feel, I, I mean, I guess, do, do you feel that this is something that when you see the end of it, like you're talking about with the grandkids thing, I think it's a really cool thing. Do you really think that at that point, right, the rest of the world will kind of understand what you do? I think, you know, so I'm 48. Mm-hmm. Well, um, me too. Yeah, yeah we... I'm having this conversation with my wife all the time, you know, and with friends, and, and some, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, midlife crisis moment and, and <laughs> what have you, yeah, and right. I look at it, and I don't mean this in a, 
an egotistical way. I'm not having a midlife crisis. I'm, I'm carrying a bit too much ballast. I drink a little bit too much beer. I eat a little bit too much. I don't run enough, you know. And so these are all character flaws, aren't they? I can see it in the mirror. You know, get up in the mirror and go, really? Um, but I've got meaning in my life. Yeah. And, you know, that... I can't overstate it. You know, it's just I wake up in the morning, as I say, my engine's pumping. I know what I'm on with. I might put I might put a day in, in work that's not as good as the previous day, but you get on, so I can sort that, you know, mm-hmm. do a better day today. But it's... I keep saying to, to my crew, you know, if you're going to fail, just trip up in the direction that you want to go in, fail mm-hmm. forward and fail fast and crack on. So it's, it's all about meaning and purpose. Um, you know, we're not getting out of this alive. Yeah. You know? We're going to hit 70, 80, 90, lucky if we're 100 with all our teeth and mm. vision all in place and, and then pop it. But you don't want to look back on it thinking, what did I just do with that three score years and ten? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you want to know that every day counts, every single day counts. And it's, I think a lot of times in society people don't, I don't know if they find meaning in their lives, but I don't know if they're really looking for it. You know, you're... We're, we're sidetracked a lot by a lot of periphery. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in here in this first world, right? People want shit. They want a good car. They mm-hmm. want, and they use those as, as uh, identifiers of success. Mm-hmm. And it's all it is is a process of escalation. You yeah. know, you've got your 50-inch TV, then you want your 60-inch TV, <laughs> and your neighbor's got this, and you can't mm-hmm. really... Just stick your head... In fact, don't stick your headphones on. Go back to hi-fi. Yeah. Stick the big speakers in front of your... Turn them up so loud that your eyes bleed and enjoy that moment. You know, whatever your music is, it doesn't matter. And I, I just think that's so important. That that's where you find meaning outside of the work you do. You know? Yeah. Just, I, you know, we were talking, I think we were talking about kids looking at their dads going, what are you guys doing? And I think that's kind of like a thing. I mean, you and I were talking about our kids don't really get our music yet. They will. Oh, <laughs> if we play it enough for them, they'll get around to it. Yeah. And also, I think. By example, you know, uh, you know, they, you know, the world doesn't change by people's opinions. It changes by people's example. Yeah. And I think just being a person the way you are, you, you're not just affecting your kids. I mean, you affected me. And like I said, you know, you and I are the same age, and you've given me a, a perspective or a relief view of things that I didn't really see until I kind of came around and and understood a little bit about what you do. And as just as a guy to a guy, man to man kind of thing, I appreciate being given that chance to see things that way and I guess you know what I'm trying to say is thanks number one for doing what you do because I don't I don't know if people thank people like you to do I mean you know you tell me but I think it's important for people to understand that there are people out there who are not motivated by by the base realities of our lives and I appreciate you taking time and talking to me about this and I, I guess what I'll do is when this this podcast comes out we'll have the website of the of the, of the charity and Hoping Home for Children is an awesome thing to do, and you're an awesome dude to spend time with me doing this too, man. And uh, you know, you're you're an inspiration to me, and I'm glad you could meet me and, and talk here in the in the basement. Well, no, thank you, thank you, sir. I mean, you've no. given you've given pleasure and joy to millions of people, and uh, well, I think you have too. I think it's a lot more. In, it's just you know, great yeah. with you here, you yeah. know, playing Scooby Snacks last night. <laughs> You know, my kids starting to listen to that, and I'm like, uh oh. Yeah, I did, play, I did mistakenly play the uh, Pulp Fiction version of it in front of my youngest. They did that on Daddy. <laughs> yeah, they did that on the radio one time. 
And, you know, yeah, it gets, I, think they, I, I think they have a clean version of it. I, I hope they do. Yeah, I like the Shamir Groove. Yeah. It's very cool. Well, they, very <laughs> cool. well, I appreciate you doing this, Mark. No, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. I don't know about you, but that conversation was a sure big-time education for me. Be sure to check out the End the Silence campaign and do your thing, my good peoples. Up next on Huey Off the Record, we have Brian Wood, MC. That means Military Cross. He's the veteran at the center of a bogus human rights investigation into the now infamous Battle of Danny Boy in Iraq back in 2004. In this candid, in-depth conversation, Brian recalls the day his unit was forced to fix bayonets and engage close quarter combat with insurgents in Iraq. He shares details of exactly what happened that day and the harrowing aftermath that has finally come close to 13 years. It's an amazing story. He's an amazing man. You won't want to miss it. So join us next on Huey Off the Record. Until then, my people, stay classy. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.